Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I'm Walt Hickey. I write Numlock. This week I spoke to Zach Wienersmith, who, along with his wife Kelly Wienersmith, wrote the brand new book, A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? I really like this book. I've been looking forward to it for years. He wrote a book called Soonish a few years ago along with Kelly, and that was a really exciting book that I really came to enjoy. This one is an in-depth look at what it's actually going to take to get a permanent human settlement on a planet uh, that is not Earth. Uh, they investigate the not just the physics of it, but also what a society needs to look like in order to make that possible, what kind of materials you're going to need in order to enact it, the legal and biological issues that have to be navigated with putting people permanently on another world. Uh, it's really great. It's an amazing read. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the interview and uh, check out the book. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to talk about space nerd stuff. Boy, are you. You have written a book called A City on Mars. Uh, you ask all sorts of really exciting questions throughout the book. Uh, it is not just a book about the physics of getting to Mars, which I think a lot of people fixate on. It is a book about sociology. It is a book about how communities work. It is a book about all sorts of different exciting things. Uh, your research process was incredibly thorough. I guess just before we kind of dive in, uh, what was it like to write this thing? What was it like to report it out and, and kind of dive into the science? Oh, man, it was kind of awful. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you, you know what it was? Way? I think, you know, when you do pop side, there's this kind of fantasy you have of like, what if I got a topic and I was like out ahead of other people and it was really controversial and kind of awesome. And you'd think that would be sort of romantic and be like a montage. But we were so anxious just like because it was like because if, if you like – we felt like we were really going against a kind of like a lot of strongly held views by smart people. And when you do that, you feel like you really have to know what you're talking about so that you can kind of stand your own when they are going to come at you. And so the result of that and our just sort of general dark watery was that there was just like a ton of um, like primary and technical source reading, which is like awesome. I actually, it's like what I do in my free time as a boring person. But when like at some point <laughs> I was reading like a hundred something pages a day of like hard stuff. And it was like, it was getting pretty like, you know, you roll out of bed and you're like, what do I have to read 50 pages of seabed international law to understand that? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was brutal. I mean, absolutely wonderful kitchen table conversations during this time, but, uh, but it was tough. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it is like very compelling because again, like, you know, you've had some of the finest minds that our society has produced consider what it would take to get us into space and, and staying there. Yeah. And, and that I imagine has got to be a lot of fun. But then you also like, you really consider all sides of this, man, you got the sociology, but like you just mentioned, you have the law, you have a whole lot of, yeah. of like, there's a lot of legal precedent when it comes to uh, how, how these interesting spaces that are not owned land, but nevertheless are, are, are important uh, matter. Yeah. So I guess just kind of diving into it, do you want to kind of walk people through the structure of the book and, and kind of what angles yeah. you take and how you dive in. So we, we ended up kind of artificially separating it into six sections, which hopefully I can actually remember, but, but because <laughs> um, we, we actually, you know, we, we fussed a lot with the structure because this is a book that, as you say, goes from lots of angles. And so it was kind of like, there were lots of options for how to structure it. And, and we actually had originally had it like 
we'll go through like orders of magnitude from like one person to 10 people, then a hundred people. And it just turns out I learned that sociologists don't believe there are like actual meaningful sort of, you, it's not like there are emergent obvious things between like a hundred and a thousand people that you can be like, okay, here's what happens now. So we ended up instead saying, we're going to start off with what it does to your body. Um, and so that's like sex and reproduction. That's physiology. What space does your body? And then also psychology, uh, psychiatry stuff, which is, which, you know, it's non-trivial. And then we move on to, you know, the place you might actually put that body. Uh, the ideal spaces are probably the moon or Mars, and especially Mars is probably best, uh, which we could get into. Um, and then we move to how you might keep that body in that place from dying. That is to say, <laughs> like habitat construction. How do you build a facility in one of these places? Where might you go? And like, what are the kind of like future goals there and the problems you need to solve, but like mostly having to do with energy and shielding um, uh, and, and also uh, making food uh, and, and, and oxygen and consumables. And then um, at that point, we, we dive into the, the, um, the, uh, the, the sort of law and sociology. So we, then we go to a, like a sort of brief rundown on the kind of like cynical history, we call it of outer space. And, and the basic point of that is to position you, to understand that that human spacefaring is almost always purely political. It's about making declarations as a superpower and showing up other countries. And that prepares you to think about how the space law as we have it is. And so we, we <laughs> go into like how the law actually works, which a lot of geeks think doesn't matter. They don't think international law exists, but it does. And we know it constrains the behavior of countries and people. Um, and from there, we get into like some sociological questions. We, we actually, uh, I guess we'll talk about this a little more later. This, that, the sociology was at one point quite extensive. And the editor was like, you just can't do this to readers. This is just too much. <laughs> um, and so we, we cut it down to, to like looking at company towns um, as a like potential model and a couple other things. And then we close out uh, with some questions having to do with like, you know, the, the kind of like future in the sense of what kind of numbers are we talking about to avoid like too much inbreeding, uh, to have economic autarky, that is to say self, be, being able to survive the death of Earth. And then finally, um, what would happen in the case of space war and how to think about the idea of space war? Um, yeah, so, so we're really trying for every angle. I could tell you, we, we did still leave out stuff. There was stuff we had to cut, but we, we tried to be <laughs> as thorough as possible. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the cynical history of space because I thought that that was just such a very like thorough look on, you know, if the, the space is one of the most romanticized things. And I think that's yes. one reason that, again, this topic is so compelling is that we just have so much stories that we tell each other about, you know, space and, and, and its role. And, you know, there's a, there's a fundamental yearning to it. There's a fundamental ambition yeah. to it. You can tell a lot of stories set in space and we have. Whereas like the cynical history of space was really just kind of bringing things down to as brass tacks as possible. It was yes. turning this romance into the physics and, and politics that it truly is. And I really appreciated it. So, so do you want to kind of dive in a little bit yeah. on that? A brief cynical history of space? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. So it's, it's kind of funny that my theory, so, so, you know, for your audience, like almost every, like some, there's like a power law. I can say this for your audience. There's like a power law yeah. for what space stuff is about. So like, it's like 90% of all space books are about Apollo 11 in particular, where we landed on the moon. And then like yeah. 90% of what's left is either Apollo 8, uh, where we first went around the moon or Apollo 13, where everything went wrong and there was a movie about it. And then down from that, it's everything else. There's a subgenre in all this that is the political history. And there are only a couple books about this and they're mostly more scholarly because like, I guess regular people just don't want to read about the sort of like geopolitical theory about why countries do this sort of thing. 
Um, and what's funny is in those fields and like people who study the law and history, if you said, hey, Kennedy went to space as a purely political act, it would be like saying, uh, I know how to tie my shoes. It's just like the most obvious thing in the world. But if yeah. you say that to like a space geek, it's like you're poking something beautiful, you know? Yeah. And, but we we just, we have the evidence, you know? I mean, you never know what's in a person's heart, but we know after, there's evidence that after Sputnik, Kennedy thought space was stupid. Um, like <laughs> he really only did that big speech to Congress, which sometimes gets conflated with the one at Rice. Um, he only did his big speech to Congress, basically saying, give me a huge pile of money, uh, after um, Bay of Pigs, and then very shortly after, Yuri Gagarin became the first person on the moon, and he was, of course, a Soviet. And so Kennedy looked like garbage, and he knew it, and he was a smart PR operator. And so, you know, we have private transcripts of stuff he said, basically saying, like, there's no reason to do this. And I'm, he uses the phrase, I'm not that into space. Um, <laughs> but, but, and he just says it very explicitly, we need to show them that we won. Um, and, and that's it. And his own science advisor, I don't think we put this in the book, but my recollection is Jerome Wiesner, his science advisor, refused to go along with the idea that this was about science. Um, he was not cool with it. And, and so it's just like, there's just very robust evidence that this was politics all the way down on both the American and the Soviet side. And that unfortunately the great mass of the public around the world overestimates the importance of rocketry to like, like uh, the dominance of nations and their technological capacity. Whereas like, I think you could easily argue the U S was ahead the whole time in everything that mattered, but, but, but people are just beguiled by rocket technology. Yeah. It's, it's like, again, like part of this, like this is some stuff that I've read, you know, it is in your book beyond it, but it's just like, it seems like a lot of people's mentality about space is derived from like Disneyland and, and like a lot of like sci-fi aesthetic stuff. Yeah, it's that. And also, like, like it's funny, you think about it, like, uh, you know, I have an older brother who's a poli-sci professor, and he said, when he gets students, and he says, who's the best president ever? They still, to this day, often say Kennedy. And when you ask them why, they they cite a speech or something, which is, like, not afforded to any other president. Any other president, <laughs> it's like, what did they do? But with Kennedy, for some reason, I, probably because he was assassinated while young and handsome, and, and there's this sort of legend about it. Like, people are like, well, Ken here's the history of spaces. Kennedy said, we go to space. Because, you know, you're amazing and we need new frontiers. And so we went and that's that's it. And, and you know, and you want to come in and say it was about politics. How dare you? You know, but, yeah. uh, uh, readers might recognize you uh, from your book Soonish. Uh, again, this book uh, you, you wrote with your wife, Kelly, as did your book Soonish. Uh, one carryover from Soonish that I really dig in this book is that you kept the Nota Benes. Uh, which are, you know, chances to kind of dive in on, on perhaps the things that are a little offbeat, but like fun elements of, of this. Uh, I really love all of them. The one that I really enjoyed the most that kind of felt very relevant to kind of the next step of, of this conversation is uh, Antarctica and, and violence around it. And, yeah. uh, and just like, again, we, we have a, a, you know, a place that is very inhospitable to human life that we send people to occasionally that um, sometimes people do crimes there. And yes. uh, it is called Antarctica. And, and that is the best indication, you know, it, it, take it from here, but like yeah. uh, of what might be the situation in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's, there's a little bit of a nuance to this. So like, Sometimes, you know, when, when, when people work in space psychiatry, space psychology, they'll say one of the things that's important is, did you know one time a guy got stabbed in Antarctica uh, for spoiling novels? And, uh, what's, <laughs> what, what, and then there's another famous story that a guy, uh, uh, the story goes that, you know, there were two Russians at Vostok Station having a chess match and one like, there are different versions of it, but like one killed the other or like attacked him with an axe or something. So they banned chess. And so both of those stories are really, they're not really true. They got passed around the internet all day and all night. I think the one about the chess thing is just not true. 
Um, or at least we couldn't find evidence. We talked to a guy who had been at Vostok Station for a long time. He was a Russian guy. And he was like, I'd never heard of this or about the chess band. And so, so you know, and, and it also just utterly smacks of Russian stereotyping. Like, you know, 100%. Discussing. Right. Everything. There's, I mean, there's no dancing bear or whatever, but but it's pretty close. And um, the story about the spoiling novels, the, the novel thing was just a, like a weird detail that was fixated on. It was apparently the guy it was more like the guy was just like hazing him and bullying him for a long time and finally went too far. And the other guy stabbed him. And it's sort of like, you know, a bit more of a conventional stabbing story. And so, you know, our perspective, there's, there's reasonably robust data on this is actually in Antarctica, where it is kind of dark and cramped and awful and somewhat space like you actually don't get a higher rate of psychiatric problems. There's maybe even some evidence it's lower. And that's probably to do with the fact that people are screened before they come and they're probably somewhat self-selected. Um, but, you know, that doesn't that doesn't mean you get to just be like, don't worry about it. Right. Because it has been the case in Antarctica that we have had to handle murders. There have actually been murders. There, there's one that's well-documented where a guy accidentally shot another guy uh, for during an altercation having to do with raisin wine, uh, which I had, by the way, <laughs> raisin wine, but it's, you know, a, a, I guess a, a sort of low-quality homemade wine. Um, <laughs> it'll, bring a new, it'll bring a new meaning to the phrase moonshine if we pull that off in space. I think, you know, this is a whole funny thing, though. We... we we would joke about this. We talk about making food in space and there's, we found a quote by um, Andy Weir, you know, of the Martian who <laughs> wrote the foreword to a book called alcohol in space, which is actually a quite wonderful book. Um, <laughs> what you would think. And he says, you know, Mark Watney wouldn't have made, you know, the, the character, the star of, um, of, of the Martian would not have made vodka. Cause why would you waste all those potatoes? But we actually, if you look into the history of biosphere, you know, the place where people stayed for two years in confinement to see if you could do this, uh, they were starving and they still made alcohol. Uh, <laughs> I love that story. It's like they're literally losing like 10% body mass, but they still made like the worst quality wine out of bananas or like beef. <laughs> and uh, humans are a problem. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that the case in a lot of this? Uh, humans are the problem in space travel? <laughs> I think, you know, the way I would say it is humans are the problem, but in that they're humans, not in like, there's like, because people tend to think like, oh, you'll go mad in space or whatever. And that there's just no evidence of that kind of extreme thing. It, it's just that they're going to be humans. And so on Earth, when you're a human, you expect all sorts of basic services. Uh, and some humans from, from time to time have acute psychiatric problems or whatever, and they need to be taken care of. And this is just kind of, usually not imagined when people talk about sending a thousand people to Mars. Uh, so let's talk about the, where to, right? So you have an entire chapter, you talk about Mars, you talk about the moon, you talk about um, a rotating space station, uh, mm. which is not the worst option. Then you talk about some other options too. Um, wh why don't you walk us through the, yeah. give, give us a little tour of the buffet here and, and yeah, where so you kind of come down as the angle. <laughs> The, the, the deal is, you know, the solar system is really, really big. Space is really, really big. But the places you might maybe sort of survive on are eeny, weeny, weeny, right? So it's like, you know, Mercury is basically a non-starter. It's way too hot. And it's actually fairly hard to get to because you have to sort of drop toward the sun and then carefully get into orbit. And then you got Venus, which is incredibly hot, high pressure, has sulfuric acid clouds. There are weirdly a couple people who still think it would be good. Uh <laughs> Uh, well, so, so their, their argument is there, and this is true. So it's a very thick atmosphere. So you should almost think of it as something like a fluid. Um, and there's a place in the atmosphere that does have like earth-like temperature and pressure and carbon dioxide. Mm. So, you know, when you're in this mode of like, well, does it literally have the elements of existence that maybe sounds beguiling? Um, I think it's crazy, but it does have its people. And then you have Mars, which is, 
the place. Basically, it has you know Earth-like elemental composition. It has an atmosphere, although it's quite thin, but it's an atmosphere with carbon dioxide. Carbon and oxygen are both nice things to have. Um, and then beyond that, you know, you, I mean, of course, there's Earth and there's Earth's moon. The moon is great, but but it's very low in water and it's carbon poor. And humans are made of carbon, as are our things we like to eat. Um, and so that's you know the the moon is is good as a place to like launch from, but not for building a permanent settlement unless you're really going to ameliorate it. Uh, and then beyond that, you've got the asteroid belt. Uh, a lot of people think it'd be great to live in asteroids, but actually asteroids are typically like rubble piles. They're like dusty rocks that are kind of like drawn together. They're actually quite distant from each other. It's not like in Star Wars where you're like dodging big potatoes and it's, it's like <laughs> you actually usually can't see one from another. Uh, they're, they're quite sparse. And, and beyond wow. that... Yeah, right. It's, it's extremely sparse. And then going further out, you just have like the, the gas giants where there's not even a surface to land on and the icy planets. And then there are a couple moons. There have been here and there proposals for like landing on Titan, but but you're talking about mm. like extraordinary distance and all sorts of other problems. So really it's the moon or Mars, which have a combined surface area smaller than Earth. And they're both just awful. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, but so that, so that the reason we say, you know, the moon is cool because it's always the same distance and the distance is not too far. It's about two days by rocket. Um, but like there's almost no water on it, contrary to what you might have heard in like articles in Bloomberg about this translunar economy we're supposedly going to build. Um, and the um, the surface is made of this really nasty stuff called regolith uh, that, that probably damages equipment, may, may cause health problems. Uh, the, the main appeal of Mars is basically it has Earth-like days. Uh, and it has access to water, has some kind of atmosphere. So all the stuff is there to not die, which is yeah. really not true anywhere else. So it's the best option that we got, but it doesn't sound like it's necessarily a great option. No, and it's also, it's like, and unless some exotic technology comes along, it's six months in, about a year stay, six months back. And you like, there's a long period where you're there, you cannot go home, right? Because Earth has raced ahead of you around the sun. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it, there's a lot of... Uh, fascinating problems that present themselves. And, and again, one thing that I love about your and Kelly's work uh, is that you really just kind of, you talk to a lot of really smart people. You do a lot mm -hmm. of the in-depth research. One thing I have to ask you about is you actually published a, an article yeah. in space policy uh, to each according to their space need communes in outer space. Yeah. I just love that this is the depth to which you did it. Where like you did get an, you did get a scientific paper out of this one too. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I should say that that scientific paper had many more jokes and illustrations in it when it was in the book. It was originally a chapter, <laughs> uh, but we, we like, we like talked to the, the, so we worked with two other guys. One was Ron Abramisky, who's like a big deal sociologist who, 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 um, is like the kibbutz and, and commune studies guy. And then uh, John, John Lair, who's like the absolute expert on how to write communes. And we did this paper together. And so the reason it got cut, like in, in an earlier version of this book, we were like, let's look at tons of sociological models. And so all that is left from that is company towns. And the basic feeling from our editor, which I think was correct, is like you know, each one of these models is like starting your audience over and a completely new yeah. topic. It's just too much to ask for a pop science audience. Um, but communes are really interesting. Um, and what's really cool, so it's like people often want to talk about stuff in, in space society, but usually you can't like do science on it, right? So you can't be like, how should we form society? That, that's hard. But if you start with, well, what do we try? What if it is a company town? Then you can say stuff because we know stuff about that structure. And one structure, and a lot of this is due to Ron Abramitsky, who we worked with, it, we know a lot about his commune. So he did this book called The Mystery of the Kibbutz, which is the mystery is how did like you actually get humans to behave communally for about 100 years? 
and is, uh, and he actually does a kind of like standard, delightful neoclassical economic analysis of how they manage human incentive structures to get people to behave in a basically communal way. And what's absolutely fascinating is when you look at like throughout history, going back hundreds of years throughout communes, they converge on the exact same sets of problems and the exact same sets <laughs> of solutions with like fascinatingly like like so Hutterites who are this very, you know, by certainly by my standards, very sort of patriarchal old world Anabaptist religion. They will shun you and shame you if you fail to do certain communal things. But if you go to like the surviving hippie communes, amazingly, they do the exact same stuff. They do it in a kind of hippie way. Um, but uh -huh. they still do it. And, and, and so it's just kind of astonishing. And so like, if you say, oh, space is going to be like a commune, you can really do some cool stuff. I mean, I don't know if it will be, but like, you can at least say we can do some like deep analysis and we can read like primary literature and it's just really cool. <laughs> it is cool. Because again, like finding experiments is hard because everything that would involve an experiment here is like either drastically immoral or extremely expensive. Yes. And uh, it, it is cool that like, you know, company towns, we have a, there's a huge economic record of that. You have an amazing chapter in the book about that. And, and I dug yeah. this article just because uh, it's, it's just kind of cool. Like how much, you know, terrestrially we do have to work with here. It's amazing. You know, one of my, one of my absolute favorite things and for, for a, a numbers audience like yours, uh, this is really cool. So like a lot of people yeah. are into this stuff or like, would it be better to have a like religious community? Cause they're going to need to be sort of cohesive. And it's like, but it's set in a kind of hand wavy way, but you can actually compare secular versus religious kibbutz, uh, kibbutzim, uh, just the plural. And you actually find that this, the religious ones have a measurable, like quantifiable with shekels, like with money, uh, difference in retention ability. So you can actually kind really? of put a number on religion as like a, a retention, <laughs> at, least, at least in this context. I know maybe Anabaptists are better than Jews at retaining people or maybe worse, you know, but you can, it's, it's amazing. And it's like, it's not trivial, but it's also not huge. It's not like, you know, an order of magnitude, but it, but it is a real difference. People are more willing to stay, uh, you know, I mean, like, I don't, this is less true for Jews, but in Anabaptism, like if you leave the commune, you like, you, you go to hell or in the Hutterite Anabaptism. So that's probably quite motivating. Um, but uh but yeah. yeah, just amazing that you can put a number on something like that. I mean, that's the thing, man. Like, if you if you if you leave the commune on Mars, you do go to Mars. Like, that's right. You, you die. You do die very quickly. Yeah. Well, yeah. But that's interesting because that adds to the analysis. Because a classic commune problem is when people can get opportunity elsewhere, they 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 do <laughs> leave. But if you die, if you go outside, that's that's probably different. <laughs> uh, I you know I would be. Uh, I, I would be in total violation of all journalistic principles if I did not ask you about the possibility of space war. Uh, what did you find on this matter? So, you know, we try really hard not to be too speculative. So we, we talked, the way we did it is like, we talked about short-term, medium, long-term, right? So short-term, basically, people talk about space war. It probably won't happen, you know, basically because there's no reason to do it. Um, so like, without getting too in-depth, there's some cool analysis about space weapons. Uh, you can look up and like, you know, space weapons sound awesome and they are kind yeah. of awesome. I, I see guiltily. Um, uh, there's some like, like zany designs from the Reagan era for like these like pumped x-ray lasers that are going to blast the Soviet, you know, <laughs> crazy shit. And, and almost I'm a simple illegal. guy. If you call it a rod from God, you have my attention. <laughs> totally. No. Yeah. 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 So, but the, the basic problem, like if, you know, all of us already have nuclear weapons. If we, if, if like, you know, insanely, you know, Russia decided they wanted to, nuke Washington, you know, I don't know if they, I mean, we do have defenses and stuff, but like, do they get any advantage from sitting the nuke in space before firing it? I think the answer is probably no. They, so it does get there faster, 
but it's also like totally exposed while it's up there. It's probably in low Earth orbit, so it's constantly pissing off everyone on Earth uh, while it's up there. <laughs> And at the end of the day, it saves you some number of minutes. Um, it might be as much as like 20, 30 minutes. I'd have to look at it. But so like meaning like you, we're talking about like just a slightly accelerated doomsday situation. There's only a really narrow set of circumstances where you'd actually want this stuff. And it's really expensive and hard to maintain. So short term, probably not going to happen for space settlements. A space settlement would probably never want to make war on another space settlement or on Earth because it would be so easy to destroy. I mean, you're talking about survival bubbles in in like the doom void. You know, one one <laughs> EMP and it's toast. You know, one one big hole and you all die. It's just it, you're you're so vulnerable and also so dependent on Earth. It's unlikely. So like a Heinlein scenario where the moon is like we're gonna mess you up. It's like no, like all Earth would have to do is hover. <laughs> some nukes over your base and blast the electric system and you're gone, you know? Um, and so the more interesting question we got into, I thought was we talk about this as a long-term issue, which is, you know, part of why on earth, you know, there, there are different theories on this, but there's this question is why don't we use gas weapons typically? Why don't we use bioweapons typically? And there's sort of cultural theories. Like maybe we just decided not to, it kind of depends on how cynical you want to be on how, about humans, like uh, whether you believe that or not. Um, but part of why we don't use these weapons is that they're unpredictable. So they're like, you know, these horrific cases from World War One where people try gas weapons and the wind blows and it just goes right back at them. Um, and of course, with bio stuff, it's even more obvious how that could go wrong. But if you're down two separate gravity wells, if it's Mars versus Earth, you can drop this stuff. And there is no risk of blowback. That's also true, right. by the way. Why we don't use nukes anymore is because we started finding radioactive byproducts in babies' teeth, um, which you know is pretty motivating for most humans. And so the only reason we bring that up is basically because a lot of space geeks say we need to colonize Mars to reduce existential risk, but we don't know that the like the equation adds up to a reduced risk. There are many ways it could add up to increased risk. Wow! When we're not sharing the same atmosphere, all of a sudden things go back on the table. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the book is called A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? It is great. When, you know, I really loved your book soonish. Um, and I thought that this was when you announced it, I was like, really, really intrigued that this was your follow up to soonish. Because soonish is all about technologies that are just kind of on the horizon. And when you announced this, I was like, well, clearly there was something left over in the reporter's notebook going into the. And so, you know, I, I guess I'll just kind of ask, like, what was it like kind of moving on to this next topic? And, like, how soonish would you say this kind of stuff is? Oh, man. Well, I would say I have set back my timeline a little having researched it. Uh, I mean, part of why we got into this in the first place is we did think it was coming relatively soon and was kind of awesome. And it was just, it was, it was surprising the extent to which advocates were not dealing with the details. And so the, the project ended up becoming like, we're going to actually get into the primary literature about all these questions. And my view is, I doubt we have a settlement, meaning like people are having children and families on Mars, certainly not in my lifetime. And I, what I would add is it's, it's almost certainly undesirable for it to happen that quickly because not enough mm -hmm. of the science is in. So it would be like sort of morally quite dubious to try to have children in these places with the lack of science we have. Um, but, you know, so to, 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 to be slightly uplifting, I have two directions on it. One uplifting direction would be, well, you never know, like maybe, you know, AI is going to take all our jobs in two weeks and uh, we'll just tell it to take us to Mars and it'll be fine. I don't know. I mean, you know, there is some world in which, you know, 30 years from now, there's like fusion drives and advanced robotics and everything I'm saying sounds quaint. 
Um, and, and then maybe it does happen. And the other thing to say, though, is like a lot of the stuff we need to do to, to make this possible and safe is like stuff that would be nice to do anyway. So, you know, without getting into it, you know, like, like it would be nice to have a legal framework on Earth where war wasn't a serious possibility or a thing that's currently happening in many places at once. Um, because in space, there's lots of stuff going fast. Um, and and uh, if you get a world where there's you know, millions and millions of tons of spacecraft going at high speed, that's a dangerous world with our current geopolitics. So we need to we need to solve that if it can be solved. Yeah, I, I loved how much of the book wasn't just the physics. Like I, yeah. I thought you really like it was really exciting to kind of see that it, it's not just can we or, or how would we, it's should we and, and what will happen, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, the, the law to me, I mean, we, we really tried to add some sugar to it uh, because like everybody <laughs> wants to read international law. So we have all these great stories. There's the story about the times like Nazis showed up in Antarctica to like hile a penguin. They actually hiled a penguin. I love this story. Um, oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> the penguin apparently was not impressed, but, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Rock on, but, penguin. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, 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 it's a funny story, but um but it matters so much. And I think a lot of people are kind of reluctant to get into it. But like for me, gosh, it's so like, it's amazing. Like most of the planet Earth is regulated under commons established in the middle of the 20th century. Like the whole world changed in like a 30 year period in the, under these new international law frameworks. And it's like nobody cares or knows. And when you say the rule, I, mean, I want a T-shirt that says the rules based international order is not perfect, but it's pretty good, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you really come to appreciate it. And I hope people get that reading our book. Amazing. So, Zach, uh, you write Saturday morning breakfast cereal, of yes. one of my favorite things. It is, you've been at it for so long. It is such an admirable project. Uh, you've written the book Soonish that if people have not already gotten, they should get. Uh, the new book, A City on Mars uh, by Kelly and Zach Wienersmith. Uh, I could not love it anymore. Where can folks find the book? They can find it at fine bookstores everywhere, or um, if you go to a city in Mar- a city on Mars.com, there are a bunch of uh, purchasing options listed. All right. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you again to Zach for coming on. Again, the book is called A City on Mars. It's available wherever you get books. Uh, you should also check out Soonish. You should check out Bee Wolf. You should check out Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. This guy is very prolific. Thanks for listening.